previously on the Enneagram Journey. Please stand for the 43rd President of the United States, George W. Bush. How do you like me now, huh? A uh, quick, uh, quick presidential update. I'm doing quite well, thank you. For the, uh, I miss you too. Uh, he gets home. I sit him down. I said, I read your journal and I need to ask you some questions. And he was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I opened it up and I said, right here, is our whole marriage a lie? Have you been smoking <laughs> cigarettes for 12 years? <laughs> and he's like, Jamie, it's like, I'm just making like a, a connection. Like there's it's a, a it's a metaphor of a sin that's causing a cancer in my soul. And I was, he's like, I, I'm a songwriter. I'm an artist. This, this is not. I don't smoke cigarettes. This is the thorn in Paul's side. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, had to, my girlfriend texts me. She's like, "Are you okay? I've been praying all day." And I'm like, yeah, "Everything's fine. We're good." <laughs> but it was that I went all the way. Yep. You are now listening to the Enneagram Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and today's episode is the final chapter of our interviews with the Enneagram Daily Reflection series authors. And we wrap it up with that number that Suzanne says holds all of our communities together, Enneagram 6, Tara Beth Leach. She's a pastor at Christ Church of Oak Brook in the western suburbs of Chicago and the author of Emboldened, Radiant Church, and yep, 40 Days on Being a Six. Before we get to Tara and Suzanne, this is your reminder to sign up for the upcoming event with Suzanne the Reverend Joseph Stabile and Brian D. McLaren, where will we go from here? We had a Zoom meeting recently uh, preparing for it, and when we were signing off, I was so happy that I wasn't the only one. Everyone mentioned about how we were already excited for the event, but now after talking and discussing and preparing for it more, we're all just really jacked. It's going to be phenomenal. They're going to share their stories, the trajectory that their lives were on, what happened, uh, you know, what shift happened, and how they got to where they are now. We're going to be talking about Enneagram and discernment, faith and love and having confidence in yourself and your relationships with God as you move forward. If any of this sounds like something you want or need to hear or you want more information, visit the link in the show notes or lifeinthetrinityministry.com slash where will we go and you can sign up there as well. You can join us in person in Dallas or register to join online. If you're listening right now and you're saying to yourself, that's great, Joel, I'm already signed up, but I'm really curious if Suzanne is teaching in the Houston, Texas area on March 5th. (laughs) You're not going to believe this. She is. March 5th at Tomball UMC, the journey toward wholeness with the Enneagram Godmother. Visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com slash tour22 for more info and your ticket, and we'll see you there. And now, Suzanne and PTB. Life without therapy is a disaster. I, I have the best. I mean, I dedicated my, this book to my therapist. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's been life changing for me. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, part of my teaching is everybody needs a therapist and everybody needs a spiritual, spiritual director. director. 
Yep. And I have both. Yeah, me too. Yep. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mm-hmm. know how I would do what I do if I didn't. Yeah. Oh, me too. Me too. Especially as a six. Yeah. Having that guidance and assurance is, 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 I mean, just a spiritual director, but also to help me learn how to discern yeah, and hear God's voice instead of depending on someone else to yep. tell me. Yep. Okay. Tara Beth, I'm so thankful for your work. All of it. I'm thankful that I get to know you. I'm particularly thankful because you represent a significant number of people who hesitate to speak up for and represent themselves. And you do it really well. So every time we find ourselves in a position through the year where we really need a six, if we can't get somebody to sign up, we're just going to call you and (laughs) say, okay, we got to have you. There's this big hole. If we don't get you, we got to have you. So uh, with that lead in, our uh, connection to one another first is through the Daily Reflection Series, which is great. And you wrote the sixth book for that. And that makes me thankful, grateful, hopeful. And I want to just talk to you about being a six. If there's something about the book that you want to point out, I want you to. If you want to talk about the process and whether or not it was difficult for you or if it felt too vulnerable, I'd love to hear about that. I want everybody to get to hear as much as I can pack in an hour of you talking about being a six. Thank you. I am so really just honored to be here and really to sit and talk with you. How fun. Thank you for having me. It's our gift. So, uh, I just want to say you like hit a grand slam at the Anagram Daily Reflection Series, um, all day Anagram event. And yeah, so the (laughs) the only interactions I've had with you were that, that day seeing you. And then when we got to do the, um, the stance conversation. Yes. Oh, that was, that's right. That was fun. Yeah. It was so good. I was like, all right, I I like Tara. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are, are you, do people who love you call you Tara or Tara Beth? Or people T- who love me, um, it depends. So my parents call me Tara Beth. Uh-huh. My husband calls me Tara. My best friend calls me Tara. And friends around like church often call me TB or PTB, like for Pastor Tara Beth. There so I really go by any one of those. Okay. So, sounds like uh, if I, if I want to be parental, I can do the Tara Beth. And if I... That's right. Yeah. If I want to get a little closer, I'll go with Tara. That's right. Yeah. Great. Very good. Okay. I know that sixes tend to doubt themselves. Mm-hmm. And depending on where they are on the continuum between phobic and counterphobic, uh, that doubt is greater or smaller. Mm-hmm. Is your life public enough? And had you already written enough that writing a daily reflection for 40 days felt like something you could just kind of walk into. Did you look back over it and say, "Eh, I don't think I'm going to put that entry in the book. Yeah. So because I do have somewhat of a public ministry and have been writing publicly for some time, writing publicly um, is 
not as scary to me as it might be for others that are just starting out um, doing that. And also I'm, I'm a preacher and I'm very vulnerable in my preaching and in my storytelling, very vulnerable. And so, um, and so, so writing publicly, uh, almost like 40 journal entries, you know, may not have been as scary, except this, um, this particular one for me were full of very, very like vulnerable stories that I thought a couple times, do I really want to put this out there? Um, for example, I've never written about the fact that, you know, I had trauma growing up. Um, or writing about, you know, the day that I found out my dad had cancer and I was, you know, among our staff and the staff had to start, you know, just some real like moments that I don't know, like I would necessarily, like, I, I question, like, do I, do I want this in there? Cause once it's out there, it's out there. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm so thankful that you left the vulnerability in because I, I believe your work, not just in this book, but in, in your preaching and pastoring and your other books, I believe that you will give sixes permission to trust their instinct to trust other people. Mm. I hope so. I hope so, too. I hope so. I, as you know, um, am apologizing to everybody for the time when I taught that Sixes were either phobic or counterphobic because I now know that's not correct. And I'm really thankful that I've figured out this way to talk about it as a continuum where people are moving. That helps. And I believe that you so get that, that you're not always counterphobic, that there are times when when you are and times when you aren't. Can you talk about these things first? Is there more movement toward and away from phobic or counterphobic than there used to be, or is there less? Is there more at home or at work? Is yeah. it situational? Like those are the kinds of things I'd love to hear you talk about. It is, it is for sure situational. It depends on whether it has to do with authority figures, for example. Um, it depends, you know, so for me, um, I developed faster professionally at work uh, than I did at home. Um, and thanks for the work of therapy, um, you know, I slowly <laughs> caught up to the work at home. And so, um, you know, whether it comes to counterphobic or phobic, it, it really depends on who it is or what it is and what the situation is. So, so let's, let's just talk professionally work for a moment. Um, so I, I'm very counter counterphobic, um, in my professional life. Um, I tend to take big risks, um, when it comes to authority figures, um, if I don't know them and, um, they, you know, um, kind of lead with the kind of a top-down posture, all my porcupines come out. I mean, I get prickly real fast. And especially, so my, my subtype is, you know, I'm a one-to-one -one six. Um, and so I'm, I'm various, I can be come across as very assertive. And so, um, so, you know, when it comes to authority figures or people or situational stuff, like I, I tend to be very counterphobic and aggressive. 
Um, and that's, that's also, but so, so the, the growth area for me professionally um, has been to learn how, like have an awareness about that, you know, 10, 11 years ago, I had no awareness of what was going on. I just knew that I was angry around authority figures and that I thought like anyone in charge was just full of poo. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so for me, like the growth area is learning to, to, to slow down and to back off and take my time instead of getting immediately prickly. Um, now at home, um, so early on in our marriage, uh, when there was conflict, I dealt with it by, by hiding and running, you know, so I used to lock myself in our bedroom, um, whenever my husband and I would fight. Um, and like, it just like, I, I wanted to run from, it. I didn't want to deal with it. So it was very different at home than it was at work. And so the growth area for me is pressing into those hard conversations and pressing into the, to the conflict, which for me, like conflict, I'm afraid of conflict. And so, um, in my professional world, like it's, it's learning to back off and at home, it's learning to lean in and work through those really hard things. Um, in addition though, like, so the people that are very close to me, um, people that I love, I love fiercely and, you know, the phobia for me is losing them and, um, or something happening to them. And so the growth area for me has been growing an awareness that a lot of these things that are happening in my mind of all of the what ifs, um, are simply simply that a lot of them are, are what ifs and learning to reground myself in reality. And for me, that's, that's leaning into my fears, um, instead of just allowing them to swirl. Great. You're a female pastor in a world that for centuries, I guess, was dominated by men. That's right. And in my journeying around the world for the last 20 years, I don't run into very many female sixes who are senior pastors of large churches and even the counterphobic ones that's kind of the thing that I don't ever see that I see in you do you think that you figured out the piece about doing the work first at work and then at home did you figure that out because you had to be counterphobic at work or did you already know it and you thought, I, I have a part of me that can do this. And I can stand toe-to-toe with the traditional ways and all it's is all of its representatives. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that path for me, uh, it's and it's interesting. I mean, so much of it is, is related to just my story and trauma healing and trauma work towards, you know, we, so when I became a Christian at 16, um, church and ministry became the safe space, whereas home was chaos. And so, you know, my, my trajectory in ministry was, was safety flourishing and kind of just this like gradual, like uphill, um, almost kind of an escalator, um, until what, until everything imploded, which we can talk about another time, um, and, or later. Um, and so it, it was, you know, in ministry, when I started realizing that there was this thing called, um, sexism Mm. and that there was, um, there was, you know, just lack of affirmation of women in ministry, that women were being sidelined. 
And uh, so I ended up finding myself in situations where I was going toe to toe with authority figures um, who um, were play, who were, had active roles in marginalizing and sidelining women. And so for me as, you know, a, a six with distrust of authority, um, it came out quite um, aggressively in the early years and very much uh, calling out um, through a lot of work and the spirit has definitely toned that down, you know, but then so moving into though becoming a senior pastor was just a whole other ball of wax mm-hmm. for me and one that I was woefully uh, unprepared for um, as a six. So I had never been in a position before up until then where like the final buck stopped with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had been in leadership positions, but I always had like an executive pastor or a senior pastor that I could go to for assurance. Now, all of a sudden, people were looking to me for the assurance. And my first year as a senior pastor um, dealing with what, what you call the committee, mm-hmm. you know, in our minds, that inner committee um, was, was terrifying for me because I didn't want to make the wrong decision. I didn't want to upset these people. I didn't want to upset those people. And so the growth area for me has been learning, like, like I actually, like my body actually knows, you know, mm-hmm. because it's so in my mind and like, actually like going on this journey, I remember my therapist saying, Tara Beth, your, your, your body actually knows before your mind, mm-hmm. which was so hard for me to comprehend because everything was in my mind, everything, all these ideas, all these voices, all these, you know, people's opinions and learning to listen to my body as a six and as a leader um, first of all, it's like the heart it's, it is hard work for a mm-hmm. six to do that hard to get there. Um, and it's something we have to constantly be thinking about and doing. Um, but it, it's important. It's important. If you, if you want to be a six and be a leader, which we don't see very often, right. um, because we're so dependent on authority, but if you want to go there, it's, um, it is a journey of learning, um, that, that there's somewhere in there is a gut instinct, which I know, like, you know, we don't think we have it oftentimes, but it's there, mm-hmm. it's there. Um, and so it's learning to find that. I so hesitate to ever say anything that involves anybody who's in politics or anything political, because then that gets to be a thing. Yeah. So Joel's leaning around to see what I'm going to say. This is a non-political <laughs> statement about a political figure. Uh-huh. Uh, Richard Rohr and I talked over the years about the election of a new president and what number we thought they were. And, um, you know, I would, I would get my answer in my head first before I asked him. Cause I, I knew I would just merge with him if he was different than me. And we were yeah. right on most of the time. He and I agreed that George W. Bush was an Enneagram six. Yeah. And, there are, and the reason I'm bringing that up is just to say that there are not very many sixes who are in leadership anywhere where the buck stops. And that right. means that he's a good person to read and to read about. Right. And you are a good person to read and to read about because you're there. And nobody can talk about your perspective but you. You have to be the one who says, this is what it looks like, this is what it feels like, this is what I think is happening. So um, I'm, I'm bringing that up only for that. And I can back it up with the fact that he happened to be in the church 
where my husband was on staff for five years and last five years until May. Well, he is like, yeah, he is a six. Yeah. Oh, I completely. So I, um, I've read that in several places that he is one example of a leader. That's a six. And so I wanted to learn about him. And I, you know, I remember when this year, this nine 11 anniversary, there were several documentaries that came out and um, one particular documentary, I watched again, his speech um, at ground zero on nine 11. And I saw myself in him. And so, you know, because one thing that is so true for me as a six is that when disaster or when something like terrible happens, like that, like, honestly, I come alive as a leader. I come the most alive when, so, so for example, when, when COVID happened, were some of my strongest moments, some of my proudest moments as a leader and as a pastor. And um, when I watched that speech from him at ground zero, I thought he was ready for this moment because he had already imagined it a thousand times. Mm-hmm. He had prepared for, he'd replayed in his mind because like his body was just ready like to go. And he led like a six. He absolutely did. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to talk to my audience right now for just a minute because they've heard me over and over and over. I have said to sixes, hear me now. You are great in an emergency. Yes. You are great in an unexpected event. You show yep. up and you know what to do every time. And every- I go on to say, that's the reason we all trust you. Therefore, that's a reason that you can trust yourself. You can stop yes. doubting yourself because yeah. we trust you to handle yeah. things in the worst of times. Yep. yep. Yeah. I get real high functioning, you know, and that's a work <laughs> for me too. Like I know what to do, but I get so high functioning in times of, of distress. But at the same time, it's like, I know exactly what to do. It's when I'm the most sure about myself. Right. It's when I'm the most confident of myself. It's when I'm the most like just grounded in who I am as a leader. Mm-hmm. Getting stuff done getting it Mm -hmm. done. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, my hope is that I've said this a good bit for the last two years, I guess, maybe just 20 months. I think there are different times in history that require leadership from different personality types. And Mm -hmm. I, um, I think the people that we need to hear from right now are the people who we're least likely to hear from. Mm -hmm. And they are nines because they see at least two sides to everything. And they are sixes because sixes have, first and foremost, what's good for everybody. They are the people who are concerned about the common good in a time and in a culture where that's gotten lost a little bit. And we are kind of divided into what's good for me. So um, I, I told you before we started recording how excited I was to talk with you and to share you with the people who listen to the podcast. And and part of it is because I want people to listen to this and say, okay, well, if, if she can do it, I can try. Mm. If, if she can yeah. look at herself and say, I'm good in a problem, then yeah. I can try. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, Suzanne, the, the, the first book that I wrote emboldened, yep. um, I wrote for that purpose. Because I had experienced a journey of being a woman in ministry. I had moments where doors were closed on me, where I was silenced, where I was sidelined or marginalized. 
um, where I was, you know, told that I couldn't. And I did anyway. I did not because I was, you know, wanted to defy them, but I did because of a deep belief um, in scripture, a deep belief that the spirit was calling me um, and a deep belief in the mission of God. And uh, so I wrote this book because I wanted other women who thought they couldn't to know that they can. Absolutely. And, um, and not, not out of defiance, but out of the mission of God. Yep. And I want men and women to know that they can do what they think they can't do. And that mm-hmm. it's a matter of, so this is my next question. Do you think if someone finds themselves kind of hanging out over here in predominantly phobic sick space, do you think there's a possibility that they can kind of train themselves toward counterphobic sickness? Absolutely. I think that we all like, um, and, and that's the joy of the Enneagram is that it is a tool um, for us to see ourselves in a reflective way um, that leads to growth and transformation to become, you know, truly, as, as you called it, it's a journey towards wholeness. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, yes. I think you said that. I it's did. A journey towards whole, you know, <laughs> yes. And it's, yeah. And that is, that's the gift of the Enneagram. It's a means of grace. And so, you know, for someone that is, is in a phobic, phobic posture and they've, you know, there are absolutely things that they can do. Um, you know, so for example, um, I, my journey of learning that I could do hard things is an ongoing lifelong journey. I remember the first time I did a triathlon, I thought there is just no way I could push my body to those types of extremes. And so I did a 5k and then I, you know, I kept increment and then I did a 10 miler. Um, and then I, you know, worked towards a trial and that for me was a practice. It was an embodied practice to begin to learn and rewire my brain that I could actually do hard things. And, and, you know, that's some, you know, someone might be saying, well, that's, that sounds like success. Like that's like, but for me, it actually, like I had a fear of pushing my body. Um, I was once, Suzanne, this is something I've never said in the podcast, but once upon a time I was 120 pounds heavier. I was the kid that um, really couldn't even run a lap around, around the track. Um, and so then to go through like this journey of pushing my body to do hard things that like was really like kind of a, a fear um, was an area of growth for me. Mm-hmm. So I had a phobia in many ways, like a pho- like it was phobic towards pushing my body and be- and kind of facing that, like being uncomfortable. And so I, there are practices that sixes can do to that would lead towards more wholeness. And I'm so glad you used the example you did because they're counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Like you, it's not, I'm going to go to this meeting and say my say, it's going right. to, I'm going to run a 5k. Yeah. And that, that's right. That gives me what I need inside of me to go to the meeting and say my say. Yeah. That's right. And I, I, I believe that your number more than any number insists on at times counterintuitive practices to change a behavior or a way of thinking because you are potentially both phobic and counterphobic and somewhere on the continuum. And so for most of your life, the learning edge is the other half of how you see the world. 
Does that make sense? It's like it has to be counterintuitive because that's how you're put together, having lived with your number for as long as you have. Meaning there aren't simple answers. You know, it's not like, well, you should do a sit and, and maybe pray one of the Psalms before you go into the meeting and then you'll be strong. It's like, no, I got to run a 5k. I, yeah, I've got to run a 5k. I need to organize my pantry. Yeah. Um, I need to, you know, organize my closet. I need to do triathlon. I need to hike a mountain. I need to, you know, it's, it is practices that, that give us a confidence that we can face scary things, that we can do hard things, that we can walk into a room that we don't want to walk into, that we can have a conversation that we don't want to have. Um, and it, it begins to rewire things and, 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 and embolden us. Um, it's, it's incredible. And especially I think for a six who is so in our head, like I'm so in my head um, to get into my body Different is thing. so important. Yeah. Just to get into my body and feel my feet on the dirt um, and my muscles ache yeah. is Ch- such a transformative practice for me. And I think for sixes, there is safety in recognizing that their body will tell them when they need to be afraid. But you have to get in touch with your body in all kinds of ways, not just during anxiety. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. And that is, um, you know, again, as my therapist always used to say to me, your body knows before your mind does. Mm -hmm. Um, As a six, we're just not good at listening to our bodies. And so, you know, so for me, like just to hear that, be like, oh, wait, so what, what is my body saying, um, has been a growth curve for me, a learning curve for me, but so important. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting. Cause I, I just want people to always be kind of thinking about, okay, well, what about a different number? How's that different? So let me say that, uh, thank God I don't have to run a 5k, but I dreaded what I do have to do as much as you struggled with that. And I thought I can't do it. And that mm-hmm. is, I have to spend significant amounts of time alone. Oh, yeah. That's my growing edge. I can't do it otherwise. Yeah. yeah. And I also have to learn to listen to my body. A lot of people talk to me about trauma, and uh, that's probably because they know I've experienced um, trauma. And um, the reality is that if if you are violated in some way physically, then it's also harder to listen to your body. It's like oh, there's a sure. cutoff that there needed to be at one time that you don't need now, potentially, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, and one that I've, I've been through a lot of trauma therapy, and I never understood why in certain situations, you know, it was, we used to in therapy call it the garage door. Yeah. Like everything would just come up around certain people. And I was just completely like disconnected from them. Um, and the situation detached was just, I'm, I'm the queen at detachment. Um, and it's like, I shut off the even feeling valve from like my mind to my body. It's like, there's just like, it's the, the pipe is broken. Um, and you know, which is a necessary sometimes thing in like scary situations, you know, maybe, but, uh, uh, it's, it's for sure a trauma response. Um, and for me, like fixing that pipeline between my mind and body has led to healing and wholeness. Yeah. All right. Uh, There are so many questions that I marked as the most important question. Like I'd think of one and I'd think, oh, that's the (laughs) most important one. And then I'd think of another one. Oh, no, 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 that one's the most important. This one's very important. 
talk for a bit about what you think the difference is between counterphobic sixes and eights. Particularly, then, I'd like for you to start with general, and then a particular conversation about female counterphobic sixes and eights. Yeah, you know, so the motivation is very different. And, you know, an eight, and you're going to, I hope you'll correct me where I get this wrong, because I don't know what it's like to be an eight. I know what it's like to be a six. But you know, an eight, like it's, it comes from more of a place of, of authority and power and, and leadership. Um, and a six, the motivation is fear. And so it's often a situation or someone, someone, you know, that maybe causes, you know, a little bit like of angst and anxiety or distrust. And so um, me moving towards that is a way for me to deal with that inner like kind of anxiety that I have going on in me. And so it's not necessarily coming from a place of, I want to be in charge here. I want to be an authority here. or I want power, but it's coming from like, there's, there's this storm that's happening inside of me when I'm, you know, in this situation and it needs to be dealt with because either they're in a place of authority and I don't, I don't, I don't trust them. I think they're full of poo. Mm-hmm. Um, or I think they're, you know, this or that. And so like to deal with that angst, I am going to, um, deal with that, you know, in a, maybe in an assertive way, mm-hmm. um, maybe go toe to toe with them. Mm-hmm. Um, where is an eight, um, you know, they're looking around the room and they're wanting to know, is anybody in charge here? Like, I don't mm-hmm. think that they are. So like, I'm going to just assume the position of authority here. Uh, what do you, I mean, what do you think? I think all that I don't is, know what it's like to be an eight. I, right. And I, I don't either, but I hear a lot about it. <laughs> you know, yeah. my oldest daughter's an eight. So I've been, I, we've okay. been growing together with Enneagram wisdom. And the, the one thing I would say that I would want everybody to hear is that it's not so much that eights want to be in charge. It's just that they don't want you to be in charge of them. Yeah. That's right. Good. And yeah. that's a different motivation. Yep. But Absolutely. they do fill all the voids. Yeah. And I think it's because they're more focused on leadership and sixes are more focused on participation. Yeah. So you'll have to tell me if that's true. But I think sixes are focused on how do I function? How do I participate in this group in a way that uses my gifts and graces and in a way that I imagine and uncover how I'm meant to be here? So that it's participatory by nature rather than standing independently by nature, which is what eights do. Right. It is, it is absolutely participatory by nature. Um, there's, there's a sense of wanting to be arm in arm um, of, of togetherness that we're kind of a, a moving unit together in the team that I'm working on. And so um yeah, for sure, you know, more dependent, participatory, um, and togetherness, you know, so working in a team, I, I can work with an eight, um, but if one, like if there, if there's trust built and that takes time for there to be trust built a lot, of, it, well, not always a lot of time. I mean, sometimes I can be a quick sell. Um, you do know, you know I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but do you know yep. they have the exact same issue? They don't trust anybody either. Yeah. So yeah. they're deciding if they trust you while you're deciding yeah. if you trust them. 
which is kind yeah. of a fascinating thing to think about when you're both so strong. Absolutely. And I, I do think, and I don't know, like I tend to struggle the most with eights. Um, and especially, you know, I, I don't, well, especially on healthy eights, you know, so like, for example, like my executive pastor here is an eight and we are the best team. Mm-hmm. Um, and we work so well together, but he's done a ton of work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's, he, he's, he's really healthy, really humble. Mm-hmm. Um, and ask good questions. You know, so when I'm with him, he sees me, he asks me questions. He's curious and he, he comes at things with a, with a posture of curiosity rather than, um, you know, kind of a, a more of a top-down posture. But I do wonder if, you know, an unhealthy six, an unhealthy eight, I'm just wondering out loud here, if they tend to be kind of the more, more toxic pair yeah. of the Enneagram numbers. That don't have space for each other. Or yeah. an extremely phobic six Yeah, with an eight. It's like eights struggle to be patient with yes. that questioning and second guessing. Not that they don't need Absolutely. to learn to, but they just struggle with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. My um, executive admin, and I, we talk about this all the time, she's an eight. Yeah. And she's just so funny. I mean, you know, I always joke with her, like, if we don't move fast enough, like with her, like, she's just like, come on, like, let's just cut to the chase and get going. Yeah. And, you know, she's another eight that I, I work great with. Yeah. Um, but we definitely come at it very differently. Yep. yep. As do people. So that's a gift for your church. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a, a another thing I, I want to listen to you talk about. <laughs> I just finished um, teaching a group of people who I teach once a year. Um, United Methodist Church is, you know, uh, we're in a point of system. Bishop, district superintendents make up the bishop's cabinet. They are the go-between between the congregation and the pastor, all that. And once a year, I teach the district superintendents from, it started out our jurisdiction, which is seven states, but now it's a broader group than that. And I've just come out of teaching them. One group that I've been teaching for several years, so they're more advanced another group that's new this year, so I'm doing beginning work with them. And in the more advanced group, one of the things that I uh, heard that I did not expect to hear is that they uh, each had a number of pastors who are deciding coming out of COVID to step away from ministry. And they were surprised. They say they shared with me there's no stance reason for it, there's no triad explanation for it. There's no gender explanation for it. It's just people they didn't expect. So uh, one of the things that I didn't have time to ask them that I wish I could have is that I've been teaching for years and years that sixes are the people who hold together all of the organizations that we belong to. They don't leave over stuff. They may be more or less participatory in a thing or a program or an event, they may give money to these three things and not this one, but they don't leave. As a six in ministry, do you think it's possible that the sixes, few though they are in in pastoral leadership, do you think it's possible it's because they're just put together in a way that you, you don't leave, you figure out how to do where you are, because that's your duty or because that's your responsibility or because that's your pattern or all the things like you can respond to any part of that you want to. Yeah. There's absolutely a sense of duty and a sense of loyalty. 
um, which of course has a dark side to it, yep. right? You know, so we tend to get stuck in toxic situations for way too long. And I think that, you know, I would be concerned for the pastors that might find themselves, there's, there's a lot of toxicity happening right now um, in, you know, what we call evangelicalism. Um, and and, and ch- churches are having, by and large, a, a very difficult time pastoring. This is, you know, I, I've, I talk to mentors who are 75 years old and they're, you know, saying we've never seen anything like this, like what pastors are going through, the polarization. And so it is incredibly hard and I've lived it. Um, I've lived some really hard months in the last two years and hard times as a pastor um, with just dealing with the polarization and the vitriol and, you know, you name it. And so, um, you know, so for me, so I'm watching a lot of my seminary friends walk away from ministry as well. I'm watching a lot of my friends, you know, go through this this disillusionment and uh, deconstruction that's just not ending. Okay. And I've had my moments of that. I've had my season of that, but for sure, I do believe that there is motivation for me as a six to want to see this change and to stay with it and to stay in it. And so you can see that again in the second book that I wrote, Radiant Church, Um, the book Radiant Church, like I like sound the alarm, like, whoa, things are not okay. And like, we need to talk about some really hard things but I still believe in the church and I'm not going anywhere. And so there's, you know, there's just this drive in me, absolutely, um, to want to sit in this, uh, but not just sit and do nothing, like lead our people, uh, the good of the whole, um, towards the radiance that God believes that we can be. So it's, it's loyalty, it's duty, but it's also a deep belief in this vision of the church and the good of the people. There you go. That that I believe that we can be who Jesus says we can be. And so I want to I want to be part of that. I want to I want to change that. Yeah. In the new book that I wrote, I I talk about liminality first. And you know, we're all kind of talking about liminal space right now, but the reality is that I went back through some of my journals recently and Richard Rohr talked to Joe and me about liminal space 22 years ago the first time. Mm-hmm. It's like, bless his heart, if he could just wait for us, we'll get there. (laughs) But here's what he said, and I'm going to quote him. He said, honestly, I believe that liminal space may be the most teachable space. And then he paused, and he said, in fact, I think it might be the only teachable space. I think what's happening around me in my church, uh, what, what's, what's happening around me and what I heard from the district superintendents when I was with them is that people are in camps that I could easily identify as Enneagram stances. They're either on the threshold trying to deal with everything in real time or they're asking for things to be the way they used to be because that's what got them through COVID. Or they're running ahead to do something new and, and without thought of what we need to bring and what we can leave behind. And what I'd like to hear your wisdom about is that as I've listened for the last month, and this is the first time I brought this up anywhere, I think what's happening is nobody's asking questions. Yeah. 
There are no questions. There are just all of these very bold statements. Absolutely. And asking questions is your gift mm-hmm. as a six. It's not the only mm-hmm. gift you have. you got a bucket full. Mm-hmm. But asking questions is the gift of the six. Mm-hmm. So you think the rest of us are going to get to that? Do you think at some point we're going to run out of opinions, which Richard Rohr says are underdeveloped thinking, and start asking somebody else's thoughts about something? It seems to me that sixes manage their fear by asking questions, and it seems to me that the other eight numbers are managing their fear by not asking any questions. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with you completely. And uh, this is something that actually... Uh, it's interesting to hear you say that because I'm, you know, the congregations that I lead, the people that I lead is I am wanting to see the church to have more of a curious posture about one another. And, you know, curiosity from another is one of my, you know, I love when I see a curious person. Um, If someone's curious about me or if a situation, I'm like, yes, like that's how we ought to be. It's curious about one another instead of presumptuous and pointing fingers. And this, you know, this is going to be really hard to happen without proximity. Um, we're not ex- asking questions a lot of times because we're not in proximity to one another. Um, we are making statements through tweets and Facebook and Instagram. And then, you know, we've got these, we're being pastored by um, news, um, talking heads um, and radio who are also making statements. And so there's just not a lot of conversing. So when it comes to difficult things, um, we're either finding people that we, we can assume or know that already agree with us and we're in proximity with them. Um, so there's not much to ask. We're just kind of creating this mm-hmm. echo chamber of all the things that we agree on. If more of us would get in proximity with others that are different than us instead of those people um, and start asking questions, I think it would revolutionize the world. Me too. I don't know how to um, lead into that, but I, 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 I generally am so dialed in when somebody's talking that there's never any other thing going on in my head. And I don't think I missed anything you said, but i tell you what I decided while you were talking. As soon as I get off the phone, I'm calling my pastor, I'm going to call Joe, and I'm going to ask Joel to get them all on the phone at the same time, and I'm going to tell them what you just said because mm-hmm. I don't want to lose it. And I don't want to lose it because in all of the efforts that I'm observing, nobody's asking questions. And no one's asking. Nobody. Nobody. And that's got to be the way forward. Got to be. Curiosity. Curiosity can change our world. Yeah. It's interesting because this year I'm closing my, and we're almost there, but we're not there yet. I'm closing my podcast. The last question is, what are you curious about? And Mm. it's kind of breathtaking for some of my guests. Mm -hmm. They go, and then you feel like you have to say, oh, I'm curious. Like, I'm so curious. (laughs) And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of what I'm curious about because I haven't articulated my curiosity. Mm -hmm. Right? And sixes are so good at that. Yeah. Okay. uh, One more question I like to ask. And if I have time, I'll do two more. Once I felt like I understood sixes a little bit, which honestly took me a long time. It was, um, I'm not sure what happened with all that. To this day, uh, if I do a women's retreat for women my age and a know your number retreat, you know, like the first one where I'm teaching Mm -hmm. all the numbers for 40 minutes and I have them identify their number 
and I'm 71, women in baby boomers, women my age, and older for sure. If I have 150 women, I will have 60 twos identified as twos in the room. And maybe 10 of them are twos, and the rest are sixes on the Enneagram. And they identify as twos because they found their way in our world by two behavior. I want everybody who hears this to hear and understand that when we have voices from women who are sixes that we can learn from, we must because we're going to misidentify if we don't. I am not being critical of people who misidentify. I get it. But you can't do any Enneagram work if you're not in your own number. And so I'm so thankful that you wrote for this series and that you've written your other books and that you have a pulpit. And in that context, here's my question. After I'd begun to believe that I kind of get sixes a little bit, I said to Joe, I think there are more sixes than any other number. And by the way, so does Richard Rohr. And so, and I think they're the people who hold all the organizations that we're part of together. And I think they're the people who are willing to do the work that you don't get any accolades for that just needs to be done for the community. So from the pulpit, what do sixes need to hear from you? That was my question to him. Hmm. And I would love to, I don't want to influence anything you would say, so I'd love to hear what you think before I tell you what he said. That's a powerful question. Um, and by the way, I misidentified as a two for years. There you go. Interesting. Yep. Yep. Um, especially as a woman in leadership, yeah. we find seats at the table by helping. Yeah. And that was my path to the table. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, uh, that's, well, that's a whole other. The, the whole thing, too, that happens with that with women pastors is it to identify as a two takes your voice away because you're there in a, a supporting role. And mm-hmm. twos are happy to be in a supporting role. And when you speak up as a six, it's there's too much of I'm not going to say anything I don't believe. I'm not going to – I'm not afraid of what's happening in real time. So I'm not backing up. I may wish I had tomorrow, but right now I'm staying right here in your face. And I we just – I, I don't know if we who teach the Enneagram didn't teach it well so that sixes could hear that about themselves, but yeah, yeah. yeah so much yeah. to unpack. Yeah. You know, when it comes to the pulpit, um, I think about just sixes longing for that guidance and our lack of finding inner guidance, our, our struggle to find kind of our own inner guidance, our own inner compass. And some of the most profound um, work for me has been discovering the empowering guiding presence of the spirit um, and the power of, of even scripture in that and how it guides me. Mm-hmm. And so a six from the pulpit wants to hear scripture. Um, scripture is, is really, you know, it's, you know, so for me, like I memorize a lot of scripture um because it's something that i often go back to or return to for guidance um and also learning that the holy spirit is not just some idea but it is to be an experienced reality 
and that it's something that for me as a sick that like I can actually experience and be empowered and be emboldened and be propelled and be impelled and all of those things um, that I actually have an empowering guide. And so a six, you know, at least for me speaking as a six, like I want to know like what those guides are. I want to know what those boundaries are. Mm, good. And um, those lanes. Mm-hmm. And for me, those lanes are scripture. Scripture is so important um, to convince uh, for a Christian six. Start with scripture. Great. So Joe's a nine. And here's what he said. He said, I think it's the responsibility of every pastor to say to a congregation, but speaking to sixes, to say, trust your own experience of life and trust your own yeah. experience of God. Amen. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. Yeah. I think trusting your own experience got that the Holy Spirit, like I said, is an experience yeah. rather that like we can experience yeah. the spirit. Yeah. And that we don't have to like rely on what someone else tell us what the spirit is. So maybe that's why the church failed to teach the Trinity in separate parts for so many years. It's like yeah. people are scared to death of the spirit instead of welcoming, you know, bring yeah. it. Cause I don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I have, good. I have two minutes left. Darn it. Okay. So, um, thank you for writing for the series. I'm so grateful that your voice is in the world in that book and in your other books, which we'll make available. So, Everybody can get those uh, titles from the podcast. And um, thank you for being a new mentor for me because I have an awful lot to learn from you, and I'm going to do my part to do that. That's one of the big surprises and gifts for me from editing the series. And... Thank you for being a mature model for women in ministry, for women who are feeling weak and for women who are feeling strong and everywhere in between and in all the situations where they find themselves. And um, finally, uh, what are you curious about? You know, these days I find myself contemplating about the future of the church. And where this is headed, and you know, I'm I'm a pastor, a practitioner, wanting to help people, um, help the church live out the fullness of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. And pastors everywhere right now are talking about like what is happening, um, and where is this going? And I'm very curious what the church. They, and I I don't believe this is going you know i think you know that i believe jesus when he said the gates of hell won't prevail yeah me too what's the what's this we're, we're definitely in a shift we're going through a paradigm shift um what is the church what's the expression of the church going to look like in 10 years yeah we definitely are and i sometimes joe and i say in response to that man i wish we were younger and sometimes we say you know it's good to be old <laughs> Yeah, I know. Part of me is like, oh, like, it'd be nice Yikes. to like, <laughs> I know it's kind of, I mean, it's so yeah. here we go. Like yeah. very go. scary for me. The thought yeah. of someday my generation is going to be the ones like leading this. Yes. Yeah. Well, or Whoa. maybe in many ways you already are. 
Thank you so, so much for your time, for your writing, for your book, for your ministry, for just being who you are. Thank you for you, for your voice, for the ways that you have mentored so many of us um, and that you are guiding. I mean, you, I'm sure you hear this all the time, but you're the matriarch for so many of us, the mother. And thank you for mothering us towards wholeness. It's my gift and honor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.